Welcome to Linked Up, Breaking Boundaries in Education, a podcast that focuses on what is happening in education today, connecting everyone to the movers and shakers that are breaking boundaries in the education arena. Hello, this is Jamie Sepinero from Linked Up, Breaking Boundaries in Education. Jerry and I are here with some folks from the higher ed environment, and we're really excited to talk about you know, the struggles and the challenges with, um, you know, attracting students for the colleges and then also retaining them. Uh, so we're going to have conversations around this topic. And you may see a familiar face, our very first podcast that we ever had. Um, our maiden voyage was with Michael Salvatore, and he was then the superintendent in uh, New Jersey, uh, in a K to 12 environment, but now he is at the higher ed level. So we're excited to have you back, Michael. Very excited about that. And uh, we'll let you uh, introduce your new role in just a minute. But Jerry, our other guest, you met at an event, didn't you? I did. I first met Cameron McCoy when I was hearing him speaking at an event about higher education and how they are responding today to today's students and really moving away from that industrial ed model that maybe you and I were involved with, Jamie. And I, um, I was really amazed at the things that our higher ed colleagues are doing to help students to be successful where they are. And I loved the way they are focusing on the student and really making sure that they can be successful, especially we're hearing a lot about those first generation students that no one else in their family has been to college. And it's so hard to maneuver that situation if you have not had someone be in the college situation before. So I, uh, once I heard Cameron speak, I think I ran up to him and said, can we get you on our podcast? Because mm -hmm. he had so many good ideas to share, really opened my eyes as to what is happening in higher education. So we're excited to have both of our guests here. And Cameron, can I start with you and have you just quickly introduce yourself, tell us where you are and your role, and then we'll go to Michael next. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you both for having us here. It's, uh, it's quite an honor and, and I'm thankful to be here um, with Michael, um, a very well-known and, and talented leader um, serving New Jersey. So um, I, I happen to be in Winchester, Virginia today uh, in my fifth day on the job at Shenandoah University um, as, their, as their new provost. So it's a really exciting time to be at, at Shenandoah I think it's it's a place that is uh, is already launching and is ready to um, really redefine uh, what uh, what private higher education looks like. So excited to be here and, and um, blessed to talk with you all today. Thank you, Cameron. We're excited to have you, Michael. Great, wonderful. So um, happy to be back with you all. It seems like we just recorded the first episode not too long ago, and here we are. I what number would this be? Uh, we're getting on to 50. We're close to 50. Wow. Yes. So I, I love doing this because it's an opportunity for me to listen to other people, to steal some great ideas. And I know Cameron has some awesome ideas and a wonderful perspective to take some tips from. So excited to be here with you today and uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation about what's happening in higher education and, and more specifically how K-12 can help be a real partner uh, in that process to make sure we have everybody prepared for what's expected. 
Yeah. You know, let's start with that, Michael, because the fact because of the fact that you've been in K-12, you're now in higher ed, you know, since this, you know, in this past year, you're both uh, new to your roles, uh, actually, right? But you know, what are those conversations that need to be had between K-12 and higher ed uh, to move forward? Well, the, the easy one is is uh, kind of start with what conversations not to have. Uh, yeah. And it starts like what I observed in um, in K-12 space was so the, the and this is typical, the, the elementary teachers uh, often said, well, they're not prepared. It's the preschool teachers. Right? Oh, yeah. Right. The middle school teachers said the elementary teachers, what do they do down there? Uh-huh. And then the high school teachers blame the middle school and then college um, uh, typically will be like they're not prepared. The high school did not prepare them. So that's not a good conversation because uh, and then it also impacts the, the market. The ind- industry says what we're getting graduates that are not prepared uh, with the skill set we need. So instead of playing that game where we, we keep pointing a finger backwards, it's really about communication because what I've learned from the K-12 space is when you begin to create these articulation, these horizontal and vertical articulation meetings or opportunities, uh, it, it enhances the conversation and it allows people to have a better understanding of, of the experience that, that one person's going through. So when you're talking about uh, the difference between a child who's a first generation student going to college, there is a difference there. And instead of saying they're not prepared, we say, how do we better prepare them, right? Uh, so if students are coming in lacking a particular skill set, well, how do we compound our lesson planning and our structure to make sure we prepare them? And I'm sure we're going to get into the idea of student success and retention when we talk about graduation and so forth. But that's that's the tip is just making sure we're communicating in a healthy environment and, and not in a in one that uh, criticizes or or, um, or speaks down to or is condescending of the previous experience. Yeah, remove that finger pointing for sure. Uh, that, that we're you know familiar with because that's easy to do, right? I think the conversation that you're talking about is harder to do, but there's a reason for that. It's going to progress us in a much better way. And usually there is a, a lot of work involved in that type of conversation um, to really propel us much better. Yeah, for sure. I know you're all from New Jersey, but in Kansas, we've really been working on this in the past few years, talking about um, post-secondary success rate, looking at students five years out to see, are they, um, and it's not just college, right? It can be, did they get a certification? Are they still working towards something? But really making sure that the student is successful for life, which is I think the direction we should all be going and what can we do to get kids there. And Cameron, when I first heard you speak, you were discussing how colleges are really um, flexing and changing in order to help meet the needs of students and moving away from that industrial ed model. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and, and what you see happening? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, I, I just love, I love Michael's points here that this is often about who's prepared and who's not prepared and, and how we communicate with each other. And, and if you think about it, I mean, he just described in the K through 12 sector sort of our industrial process. 
you go, you know, here to here to here to here to here. And there are these sort of stage gates that are there. And then you get to a place where you've got a rising senior who's trying to figure out how to go to college. And, and frankly, we've made that communication incredibly challenging. Um, Even for those who are highly privileged, it's quite a confusing process to figure out which college should I go to? How should I go there? And, and we as institutions are, are given credit for, um, for accepting the most prepared learners. That's where quality seems to be. And, and to me, that's a, that is fundamentally backwards, right? There is no, there's no proof that somebody who got into um, one of the more um, prestigious institutions or more highly ranked institutions traveled a further distance than somebody who went to a less prestigious or broadly accessible institution. And, and I think fundamentally part of this is that we approach higher education in what I call an industrial industrial process approach, right? So if you think about that, that's just ripe with barriers at the entry stage. Mm-hmm. What are all those statiates that we put in place? And then once we've allowed you into our institution and you climb over our ivy covered walls and you're inside of the institution, we recognize uh, learning in our process that we call matriculation which by and large is very left to right and quite linear and is aligned to some predefined major. And when we do that, we ignore all of the learning that we have provided for young people or, or um, those who are coming at a later stage in life um, to shape themselves as humans. Um, so what is happening in the residential learning environment? What might be happening in the experiential space? And, and so we're focused in that portion of our process really only on the academic enterprise, which is certainly incredibly important, but it presents a number of barriers in modern higher education. And then once you move out of the matriculation process, you've con- completed a number of credit hours, um, you, you speak with an employer about what your major is and you launch into some, some pathway that you probably only stay in you know, data-wise for a very short period of time, um, you know, averaging two to five years until you change into another profession. But our process at that point is to ask you for money, right? So if I think about our industrial process, it's barriers to admission, matriculation, ask me for money. And, and we live in a platform environment. And so all these businesses are sort of making this transition and have been making this transition to platform. And in order for us in higher education to transition as well, um, we really have to do what I would say are three things. Um, first, we have to um, focus on the, in, in the intent to learn build towards anchoring and then focus on this sort of career success, lifelong career success you're pointing to. And there's a bunch of pieces and parts to that. But if we don't focus our core uh, on centering learners in this process and making it easier for them to use us as a platform for their lifelong success and centering trust, I mean, you think the data are somewhere around 80% of people are lying on their LinkedIn profile and we haven't even activated our, um, uh, our, our credentials. I mean, your diploma is not, it's not on the wall behind you. It's probably in a box somewhere, right? Um, we have to activate that. And, and frankly, um, probably most importantly, we have to start to center equity with intention. And those barriers have to be moved out of the way with an equity first focus. Um, so uh, that's a, a long way to get around it here, but I really see a shift of institutions away from this sort of process oriented into a much more um, platform oriented 
um, tool or approach that that um, gives agency over learning credentials, recognizes learning when it occurs, and engages learners at a point and uh, of their intention to learn um, in a way that is is modernized and platform oriented. So, Cameron, a platform environment may be a new term to people that are listening. Can you give us just a broad definition of what you mean when you say a platform environment? I, I can. I mean, I mean, let's go back to the point here where we're, we're centering learners, um, mm-hmm. or um, think about the, the way that we engage with businesses, the way that we engage with media, the way that we engage with really the world around us. We, we do that um, not necessarily on a subscription model, but we we go and pick the things and pieces and parts that we want when we need them. Um, in in higher education. Uh, isn't quite there yet, and maybe we won't ever be there. But if we're to think about us as as a platform, that means that we are uh, enabling and empowering learners to engage with us when they need to engage with us, and that we're being proactive in that engagement with them, um, because what we've done is we've anchored them to us for all of their learning needs throughout the course of their of their life. Um, and so if you think about that sort of in that core matriculation, which I like to call the anchoring period, that means that in the academic enterprise, we're focusing on um, curated credential rich pathways so that if a learner stops out or drops out, they still have agency over their credentials. Perhaps it's anchored to a, an immutable ledger of some sort, you know, I'm thinking sort of blockchain here, um, where it's a digital wallet and they can stack and, and organize the, their credentials and competencies accordingly um, to share with, with potential employers or, or those that need them, other institutions. Um, but that in that same regard, we're recognizing learning as it occurs with the human skills in the residential experience and certainly in those experiential opportunities as well. I mean, the number of, of internships and co-ops and engagements we have with outside enterprises that, that don't come with anything other than a resume line um, seems to be a bit of a problem for me. I mean, why wouldn't we say, let's imagine Michael and I um, go work with you guys and we're doing an internship and he does an incredibly cool project and he has that sort of moment of distinction and I file some papers. Yes. Today, we both get to say that we did, you know, we did a, uh, an internship with you. And there's really no distinction between those. And we also didn't say to you as, as institutions that Cameron needs to develop in this set of human skills and this set of technical skills, and Michael needs to develop in this set and this set, and, and ask you then to affirm that that is the educational experience we had. And then we then could turn around and say, this is true, it's verifiable and validatable. And, and Cameron and Michael, you can, you can share that moment of distinction at your will. So it sounds like we're talking about a personalized, authentic learning situation, like would be in, like we hope to be, right, in the K-12 environment. So instead of moving to the traditional model that we all know uh, for higher ed, make it more personalized to the specific needs of the learner um, and put them in charge of their learning. Um, I guess that's, that's really what you're describing, right? Yeah, in, in many ways. Um, I mean, I, I don't want us to think about the learning experience only being that four years. I mean, we, right. I'm using the word learner intentionally here because we define, we've defined college and the college experience around an 18 to 22 year old. And, and while that is really important and we have a lot of next gen learners who are, are ready to engage in that way, 
um, you know, us as, a, as the, the U.S. as an economy um, to sort of maintain GDP right where it is at 2.6 to 2.9 percent, we probably have to double the number of bachelor's degrees that we're issuing in the next 10 years or so. And that means we either have to scale our enterprise um, with the number of institutions we have today, or we have to double the number of institutions. And that's just not a reality, right? So that means, I think, Jamie, that um, we maybe have to start thinking about um, offering learning opportunities in ways that we aren't, but really intentionally curating those experiences so there's not a lot of, of stopout, dropout, or loss in the process and that we can continually engage. And when you're, you're post-degree, if you've finished your 120-some-odd hours or you've produced another one, that we're much more proactive in engaging you when you're ready to make some sort of a transition. And so we don't necessarily know that today, in part because we don't ask that question. But I should know that you're, you're leveraging and activating your transcript or the, some of the portions of courses that you took or your diploma or that you're seeking a job because those data are there. And it should be a trigger for me to say, hey, um, you know, Jamie, I hope you had a wonderful experience here at Shenandoah, and I'm ready to help you make that next transition. How might we serve you? And, and, and we talk about those kinds of interaction today as if those are distinctly different from the way that we do education in higher education currently. And I don't think that they are. It's just a matter of us reimagining how we how and when we engage with you and how we make that an opportunity. And to be honest with you, we, we have a lot of learning in the four-year sector that we could do from the two-year sector. Um, they're quite good at this kind of engagement because people know I can just go to my local um, two-year institution and engage with them when I need to. And, and, and so we could take some of that idea, but we also have to leverage modern technology infrastructure to allow us to empower and engage and, and, and certainly center equity and trust. I'm wondering, has um, COVID shaped any of your ideas about how we might do this going forward? Has it had an impact at all? Uh, I, I love what you were saying, Cameron, because uh, the idea that we're kind of um, modeling after these unique boutique programs that happen in higher ed, right? There are these interesting programs that bring industry into the classroom. There's this uh, communication, this collaboration that prepares students differently, but it's at a small scale, Jerry. It's like, it's, it's not widespread and, and we all have uh, we all have this unique center of distinction or program of distinction that we take great pride in, but it's not universal. And uh, when we keep, when we're talking about this transition from K-12 to higher ed, so that'll keep some students prepared and uh, keep them engaged and, and, get, and make sure they're prepared. They'll keep some. But the boatloads of students, the rafts that come through, uh, that come through for a year or two and leave, a, a lot are about engagement, but it's also about that exposure and the interventions. You see, pre-K to 12 space is, uh, we understand that we don't have the luxury to select in, uh, incoming, right? Uh, we, we are the, the model for access uh, and, and equitable, equitable education, but the intervention piece in K-12 or pre-K-12 is heavy, right? You have so many resources dedicated to making sure students are successful. Whereas what I'm seeing at higher ed, and this is uh, specific to Kane, but in some other institutions is that uh, there are interventions around student success and retention, but they don't look 
they don't really resemble what the intervention and the passion of the intervention that exists in a, in a K-12 space. Uh, and I think the, the, best, um, the best side uh, to uh, make it analogous to is a student who has special needs. Uh, we get it in every atmosphere. We get it in pre-K, we get it all the way through higher ed. Um, but if you take away that, you strip that classification away, there are students who are not classified as anything particular, but they have great needs and, they, and there are interventions and supports that need to be in place to ensure their success. And this is what higher ed typically has a tough time doing. You uh, referenced a 40% uh, four-year cohort graduation rate or uh, nationally or 50%. Um, in K-12, people would be fired for that, right? It's, right. it's You cannot yes. do that. Um, but also we know it, it's, the, it's the orientation process to make sure everything's the right fit and making sure that uh, we know when students come in undecided, right, Cameron, they have a, a higher likelihood of not completing. So it's all about preparing them for what their career could be or their first career could be, right? Cameron, to your point, a lot of data out there suggests that, uh, well, a lot of data and studies uh, reveal that students who come in undecided or not sure will enter into college, drop out, enter in a career they don't like, change careers. But even with a bachelor's degree, you're bound to change your career. I, I think they're talking about millennials and the new generation in terms of changing their career up to seven times in the first 15 years or something insane, right? Where uh, my previous post was 23 years in the same institution, right? It's just a different generation. So I think the conversations around making sure, um, I think it's hard to have a conversation about equity and access though for higher ed when there are they are very selective, right? And maybe rightfully so because uh, why we don't want to waste a student's money or time uh, when they, they might not see themselves in a particular program, but we're squeezing them into a program. What Cameron is suggesting is uh, creating opportunities for students to engage with professionals and learn maybe differently than the structure that currently exists. So you have this structure that exists that, that meet, might meet the needs of that 40% or 50%, but what about the other 50%? What if we were unique and personalized that process. Um, and I love the connection to community college. I met yesterday with the president of Brookdale Community College and he constantly, maybe it's who he is, but he constantly was thinking of new ideas to engage his partnerships with his high school partnerships and, and having just unique ideas because he needs to survive. His enrollment is his survival. So he has to be creative, think outside the box. And a lot of what you're saying about micro-credentials and personalized pathway is something he, we discussed yesterday. So I, I think the higher ed uh, through COVID has really analyzed how we're doing, how we're, how we're, how we're structured and, and some new innovative ways to capture a broader audience. Yes, and I, I always think that moving straight into college when you don't know what you want to do is a very expensive way to, to look at options. Um, and I see, do you see more kids taking a gap year and not going straight into college or, or is that changed? Yeah, that kind of speaks to what Cameron was talking about too, perhaps with not necessarily doing something in four years between that right. 18 to 22 range, right? I think this year uh, our data will be really interesting with COVID um, mm -hmm. because uh, you, like an example would be New Jersey State Colleges. They're uh, 
kind of in lockstep about vaccines, right? And it's different according to each state. I don't know what uh, West Virginia or Virginia or, or Georgia or Mississippi, I don't know what they're doing, right? But they're not in unison. And when you have vaccine as a mandate, that that weighs on your decision on uh, particularly an 18 year old who's been in a remote environment for a year and a half, right? They may not be, they, if they have an opportunity to pause, they may. And I, I think we're, we're probably gonna see th- some things for 2021, uh, for 21, 22 entry that we hopefully don't see again. But I, I, I do think that if you're ever gonna see a gap, it's probably gonna be this year because there's a lot to figure out and there's a lot of misinformation and, um, and new information out there that people are contemplating before they go back to school. Yes. Are you doing anything intentionally to really help that first generation college student be successful? What, what are some things that colleges are doing to really support them? You're, you're headed towards um, something really important here. And, and that is that we all, and it's just our, our nature here, um, uh, talk about higher education um, and probably the, the P-12 sector as well, um, the way that we deliver that is, is wholly centered around a, um, a white male process. Right. And, right? and I think we've, yes. we've got some work to do um, to reshape and refocus and, and frankly become quite um, uh, intentionally anti-racist, but at the same time also focus on equity first and providing that agency. And, and COVID, if it did anything, was was show us a lot of the inequities that are that are out there, particularly for um, first gen, next gen um, learners and those who are um, are learners of color and learners from rural areas um, have you know found themselves quite excluded and challenged in the way that they receive education. Um, but for me, it also offers us some opportunity to think about learning where and when it occurs. So this idea of a gap year, I mean, there's some really great organizations out there figuring out how um, uh, uh, someone who applies to Shenandoah, perhaps they've um, been accepted, but it might make sense for us to say, listen, I want you to go study for the next six months or next year in Costa Rica um, with this organization, this not-for-profit organization. And when you come back, you'll be a sophomore. Um, but we're gonna, you're going to be admitted there first and you'll transfer into us. Um, you know, that kind of a thing opens some eyes in a totally different way. But so does, you know, so does recognizing that when, when a young person, if we're only talking about the 18 to 22-year-old, comes here um, you know, for their first time, um, we're still focused heavily on that academic progression. And that's where all the metrics are, right? But there's learning that occurs outside of the classroom. It's that first time that they've been away from home. They're having to do their own laundry. They're having to schedule themselves and for, for a lot of these folks. Now I give I give our um, our learners of color a lot of credit for many of them, particularly first gen, they're much more organized. And so it, it behooves us to really understand how to create an environment where um, imposter syndrome is not something they face every single day, where they feel like this really is home and we've given them the support structure um, and empowered them with their with their um, their learning credentials, whether it's residential, experiential, or academic, um, in a way that helps them understand where they might go next and helping helps us curate them. But there's also a technology piece to this, um, Jerry, that 
many of us are sort of afraid to think about um, because it feels additive. Um, but, but I think we've got to find the courage here to both think about what does a lifelong pathway look like? So for example, someone might come here and say, I want to study accounting. Um, and if we're not looking at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data that say accountants won't exist in that same form in 10 years, maybe you should think about fintech. We've missed the opportunity, right? We, we didn't set them up for success. And there are some, some organizations and technologies that can help us do that kind of thing. Um, and at the same time, um, we have to think about what does this mean from a digital delivery standpoint? Um, we're so, uh, many of us are stuck on our campus and that classroom uh, education must be delivered in the classroom. We, we've made a pendulum back the other way that we probably have to sort of right size um, and, and really embrace the idea of integrated digital opportunities in a flexible environment um, and, and being able to uh, engage with the learner when they need to engage in a way that allows our faculty to still meaningfully um, uh, deliver educational experiences, but also meets our learners where they are. Um, and, and frankly, if we can get all that right, then we can think about the campus as a platform. I mean, there's no reason that you couldn't, if COVID proved anything else, it's no reason you couldn't live in our dorms, work for you guys and take classes at the same time. I mean, that, that's a platform. Right. right. You don't have to live in New York City. You could live here. Right. And work for a company there. So, I, I mean, I think there's lots of options and lots of opportunity coming out of this if we if we resist the urge to go back to what was. So I want to just uh, jump into something that you said, Cameron, and uh, you you spoke about imposter syndrome, which this audience might not be familiar with. But um, so I, I was a first generation college student myself, and I often sat in that classroom saying, "Am I supposed to be here? You know, do I pretend like I'm like them? I, I you know, trying to find my identity." Um, and eventually you find your way, but it's really through the outside the classroom where you find that you belong there. Yeah. And that, that, that whole concept, this division of student affairs, I think it's critical for not just for retention, but a truly successful college experience. It's to be engaged. And we see it from pre-K to 12, those who are engaged in activities in school, whether it be athletics, whether it be clubs, uh, the band, uh, and, and Jamie, you, you know this, right, as having uh, two daughters who are athletes and very engaged, right, their experience is, is well-rounded because of those things outside of the classroom. The classroom has to be rich and rewarding, but outside is where we, we connect. And, and for me, it was being involved in things outside of the classroom where I found my identity. Uh, and we have to continue to do this. The students that are most engaged in colleges, no surprise, are those with GPAs over 3.2. No surprise, it's actually probably parallel in, in uh, secondary ed right now. Uh, and we have to think about creative ways to engage those students who are not self-motivators or, uh, or curious by nature to go and find something for them. Uh, so those typical uh, meetings with the tables and the quad, that's not, for, that's not gonna attract everybody to go and say, I, I wanna be in the choir. It's, it's got to be more than that. And I think uh, Derek Bach, former Harvard president years ago, said it best uh, that those who are engaged, particularly with people and school officials, have a more likelihood of having success and graduating college than those who don't. So I even see it as my responsibility as a college administrator to make sure I'm connecting with those all of our students. So in saying hi, that, that pleasant smile, that welcoming voice, uh, and, and not because that one person makes a difference, but it's a model for other faculty and staff who walk by people 
each day. It's that let's let's stay connected because those those little pragmatics are really important, and I think they're gonna that's the that's gonna make a big difference uh, moving forward. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's a, you're you're hitting the nail on the head from a centering trust kind of standpoint, right? It's not just trust in the verification value of the credential, but it's trust in the environment, right? Because if we're being honest with ourselves, you know, learners like Michael, when they when they come to campus, they're playing a different game than than folks who came from privilege like myself. I mean, I never doubted I was going to go to college and I was totally comfortable just kind of being there and doing whatever I needed to do. And I had no no real worries. And and a lot of our first gen learners are are playing a game in the classroom and really deeply focused on that because that's what they've been told is the key to success. I think we've really got to create that trusted environment that engages them in the way that that, that Michael's talking about because it's really important for us to create that that mentality of service. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the the key elements of me wanting to come to Shenandoah, when I first came onto campus, um, I was blessed to spend time with a number of different learners here, young, young folks. And they gave me a tour and asked every single one of them, um, you know, what is it you want to do with your life? And I am, I'm not making this up. Five out of five separately, all said to me, I want to help other people. Mm. Right? Love that, right? Yeah. And, uh, there's something, there's something in the water and something in the culture here, and I can tell you, it certainly is the leadership. Absolutely, is the way that our faculty serve here. But um, you know, the question becomes: Well, how do we make sure that that's real always in perpetuity? And how do we create that sort of Shenandoah experience, regardless of where your pillow lies, and where, and regardless of where you are in your life cycle? Um, and, and I think that's really important to do that and build that level of trust. Absolutely. I think, I think there's that old quote or something. If you, if you really uh, want to seek happiness, uh, the, the trick is to lose yourself in the service of other people, right? Yeah. To really just be connected and committed to serving other people. So yeah. that, that's a great story. That is. That is. And, you know, learning is so social. And I know when my two children went to college, it was like, you have to be connected to somebody in the college situation because it can be the loneliest place in the world. And so um, my son, I just said, you will join a fraternity. And he was like, no way. Now he is connected with those people still today. And it was a great um, situation for him. He was kind of shy. And I knew that he needed that connection. So the connection can be so different for everyone. But it's also uh, people like yourself that are reaching out to the kids. We had Um, a man at Kansas State University that everybody knew because he was so friendly. And oh my gosh, I just realized he was from New Jersey. (laughs) But uh, Pat Bosco, and everyone knew Pat Bosco. I could call him as a parent. The kids would call him. And he made the difference for that huge university. So it does make that difference. It must be a Jersey thing, huh? Maybe it is. (laughs) But I... I think what you're saying, what you're both saying sounds so simple to make, you know, keep, have college as a nurturing environment with mm-hmm. that is um, customized to their needs and, and where they want to go. Uh, but also, um, you know, provide that important engagement. Um, but it sounds so simple, but it doesn't always happen. And why? I mean, it does seem like a simple concept. So why doesn't it always happen? Um, I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking 
lots of handholding, supports, um, uh, advisors. Um, I was just talking to a friend whose um, uh, school has like um, for each student, like three different advisors. And that could seem like overload, but hey, that could make the difference of a student saying, I feel connected and worthy and I belong here and I want to move on to like, you know, what the heck, I, I can just move on. So how do you make that shift? How does that happen? Yeah, um, well, I, I, so I obviously have some thoughts here, um, but I, you're right. It's easier said than done. Absolutely. If it, if it were as simple as we, as I certainly might be making it sound, um, uh, it would, it would be done by now. And I can, you can point to a number of institutions that have made this shift, but it's, it's really um, it, important to recognize all of the external pressures that are on us as institutions. And, and quite frankly, um, some of those things we've brought upon ourselves and we've lost our voice in the public square in, in many ways, but part of it is, is, you know, we, we practice, isomorphic behavior. We copy each other in our organizational structures. And, and we do that because we're incented to do so, whether it's on the outcome measurement side or our faculty pathways and the way that we, um, we, we create growth there, our development of majors and our uh, analysis of where the opportunities are, or um, even in the, in the quote unquote rankings and assessments of quality that happen on the front end of this, um, and, and how we even recruit leaders, all of those things sort of push us to look the same. And that causes a lot of real challenges in the way that we design for success. And, and to be honest with you, the kinds of things that you just suggested should look different at Shenandoah than they might at Kane. And that's okay, and we should be okay with that. Um, but, but we're not incented to behave that way. Um, and, and I think that's a really important point here that um, the structural systems and uh, organizational behaviors are really sort of designed against the simple solutions um, and many of the fiscal constraints too. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, because it sounds like added staff for a lot of these, you know, not just having that counselor, but having enough to have touch points on kids on a regular basis, right? Yeah, so it sure. does, it takes, it takes money. And I guess that's the big challenge. Well, it takes money and technology too. Uh, you're right. You're right about that. Uh, but so I, I think um, to make it a little broader in terms of the answer, uh, not that that's helpful, but um, <laughs> I'm coming off a Cal Newport book of deep work, and I, I can't help but think of what he talks about. Like, so all of us, our human nature is that we know, like, it's really important to get involved in meaningful work. Yet we're in the shallows quite often, just pushing email, pushing paper and doing things. And, uh, and not to be an excuse, but this is human nature. We, we occupy ourselves with 160 email and getting back within 24 hour. Uh, and then we realize we've spent 90 minutes doing some really shallow push paper work. When that 90 minutes is the kind of that, that key marker to, to really engage yourself in something meaningful. So it's not just a, a university saying, how do we plan and engage uh, and, and why they're not doing it. I think it's all of us saying, you know, how do we reframe uh, the current work we do each day so that we're not in the shallow work of pushing things forward and getting stuff done and checking boxes and, and scheduling those opportunities for ourselves to deeply think about what matters and what's important. 
So if universities do that, it's a, to think about how do we stay engaged with our students? If K-12 does it, it's saying, how do we personalize that experience? You know, uh, But I think if we all kind of have to t- take a note from uh, Cal uh, Newport and, and his his writings, because he's right. The more time we spend on meaningful work, the more fulfilled we feel uh, and the more impact it has on society. Yeah. I think that goes back to what Cameron said too, um, where you had, you asked that question and they all answered that they want to be helping others. So it's being authentic and being connected to others. Um, Michael, you said that, um, you know, instead of, sticking with the shallow, pushing papers, checking boxes, right? We want to make it authentic and meaningful. And I know my daughter who's currently, um, well, she's a rising sophomore in college. um, She had a, every freshman has to have a um, civic course, a a community course, how to connect with the community, be involved in, um, you pick um, an organization to work with and help. Um, and actually COVID kind of uh, squashed a little bit of what they typically do. But I loved that. I mean, of course they did that in high school. It's part of what we do in high school. So just as you mentioned, Cameron, you know, bringing some of what we do in high school into the college, why stop that, right? Mm-hmm. Bringing it forward into that, uh, you know, the higher ed arena, because that's who they should be as citizens, right? As real people in the real world. That's what mm-hmm. makes them connected and have a purpose in their lives. That's right. Yeah. I, if I could reach to the screen and give Michael a high five on that meaningful work, I, I would totally do it. And, and Jamie, you're, I think you're exactly right. I mean, we, we, um, you know, in fairness, we in higher education have, haven't been asked to deliver the higher, the, the human skills, so to speak with, with an intention and framework until after roughly 2008, when the downturn in the economy and, the, and businesses stopped making that investment. Mm. Right. And all of a sudden it became our responsibility, mm. but even then we haven't necessarily been really intentional about that to say, this is this, these are the human skills that someone who came to our institution will graduate with. But um, you know, to to bring kind of all that together, and, and Michael's really profound point of meaningful work, um, you know, one of the mechanisms that I think we all have to think about in terms of how we make these kinds of transitions um, is is to build the um, proverbial mental muscle around how we think about what we do and when we do it. So, in that regard, you know, those that have made big trans- transitions, and many of us dismiss them. Um, but they're they're largely successful, um, you know. Whether they're University Innovation Alliance folks or they're um, the Southern New Hampshire's of the world, who a lot of us, which is well, it's just a big massive online, kind of yeah. But they didn't get there um, without this sort of core infrastructure of place, space, and and mental ability. Um, to think through some of these really meaty challenges that seem simple but are not, right? Um, so when Michael was talking, I kept thinking about Clay Christensen's jobs to be done framework, which is you know a tool that simply says, what is being expected of us from learners? What might be expected of us from alumni, from employers, from our faculty, from our staff? And how are we meeting them uh, and those needs? And what is it? And then after we've understood that, what is it we're doing now that isn't meeting those needs, that is meeting those needs that we deem to be necessary, that we might be able to do in a different way? And that, frankly, the third piece of that is, you know, what is it that we should be doing um, that is meaningful to us where we're doing that meaningful work. We're not just sitting around answering emails for eight hours a day because someone said we needed to be in the office from eight to five, right? 
And, and that's a that's a heavy lift exercise that higher ed institutions really have to invest in across the board, whether it's in career centers or schools of business or in the faculty or you know anywhere else in our mechanism. Um, really thinking about getting to that place where we're stopping doing things we just do because we've always done them or because other institutions do them, doing things intentionally at scale that we that we should be using technology or should be doing a different way, and then really focusing on those meaningful, impactful elements of, of deep work. Isn't that what, um, I think uh, Google did that, right? So they gave everybody that 20% time where there's like, hey, so we'll pick a problem that we have here at Google and you can focus on it. One that you're passionate about, you want to change. And that's, I mean, that's how every feature for Gmail came about. Uh, I mean, numerous solutions were presented that way. Now, is it reasonable to say every Friday we can pack it in for eight hours and just focus on deep work? Probably not. But I think it's reasonable to say we can push our email to a 90 minute window a day um, and uh, forget that little surge you get when you have like five minutes of downtime and you think I need to check my email. You know, we, we need the silence in our life, too. We, uh, we, we need the separation. We need to disconnect. We often invite distractions into our place because that's what we do. We're like, all right, I got five minutes. I mean, go look at anybody waiting on a line to go into a store, a restaurant, DMV. They're on their phone inviting distractions in when they probably can be, yeah, right, camera, where they probably can be really focused on a deep problem that they have. And by the time they got to the end of that 90-minute DMV line, they might even have a solution. But instead, you know, there we we all as humans invite many distractions in. And I think we have to learn to filter that. I mean, just go ask a, a teen to show you their profile, right? That app that tells you how many minutes you're on social media, you know, and then like, just have them consider for a second that they wasted two hours today. Yeah. You know, that's that, I think that's where we find the time to do the, the deep work that needs to be done. Yeah. I, I mean, even think about back to that COVID question, that same regard, Michael, I mean, you really kind of hitting it on the head here. How many, how many organizations, I saw a really great article the other day on this, by the way, I'm, I think I forwarded it on my LinkedIn profile, but, but someone was sort of tongue in cheek, um, talking about remote work and how organizations are talking about remote work and the, the necessity for us to actively manage our time and share how we're using our time and to define outcomes from the work that we're doing, which I find to be fascinating that it takes someone not being in the office for us to define what work they ought to be doing. What were we doing before? We're just you, because you come in the office, that guarantees that you're productive with your time. I don't think so. Right, right. I, I mean, that's on Absolutely. us. We, we have to be better about that. Absolutely, yes. Wow, there so many good ideas came out of this, and and I noted both of the books that you mentioned, um, the Cal Newport and the Clay Christensen. Is there as we kind of land this plane today. Is there anything that you're doing this summer um, just for your own personal development or learning for your job next year that you could share with our listeners that maybe they would like to connect with? A book, a YouTube, a Netflix, it could be anything. Toes in the sand? Yes. Toes in the sand. So um, new to me, I've never had this in my life before, but uh, Kane University has an energy shutdown on Fridays where they condense and they do four day work weeks. I've never had it before in my life. But on that Friday, I, I've been to the beach almost every Friday, whether I've been surfing, 
enjoying time in the sand. And I'm trying to take advantage of another book I read, and I forget the author, but it's about um, having many habits, right? This oh, the idea, like it's a great M-I-N-I, book. M-I-N-I, many? Many or- habits, yeah, many, like, like really small habits, right? Yes. But the idea is that we all believe we can do one push-up right? So we're motivated to do one push-up, but maybe you could do two, but you're not going to set a goal for two. You're going to set a goal for one because it's easy. So and you're, true. Yes. So, so when you put those, you're more likely, I mean, there's uh, lots of data that, uh, that he reveals in the book that um, you're more likely to, to complete a micro habit and then build on that. So you, you're eventually, he built up to a hundred push-ups every day from the one push-up model. So I've been trying to do that, just set small goals for myself to spend time outside, to reconnect, to read, and make them short, an extension of what I do right now. And then you kind of uh, feel proud about yourself. And so, uh, Absolutely. So engage in a little mini habits and, and micro parties and whatever you can do to celebrate yourself. I think that's great, Michael, because especially for you, because I don't know anyone else who is motor, motor nonstop. So I'm really happy that you're able to find that time. And I'm sure your family is too. That's fantastic. Good stuff. How about you, Cameron? Well, you know, I wish I could could share that I was uh, intentional, as intentional about it as Michael. I mean, I, I've been just trying to figure out how do I transition into this new job. And yeah, day five, right? Yeah, I mean, it's been a blessing and I got to give, I have to give Shenandoah credit and then my predecessor credit. I mean, they, they have been um, open and transparent and engaged since day negative 75 um, and all the way through. So I don't feel like I walked into something that I didn't know what was going on, but it's been a real blessing to sort of have a little bit of time off and spend it with the family and, um, and, and, and embrace my introvert because um, I think a lot of folks don't realize how hard you know, COVID was for people who are extroverted and certainly for people who are introverts. Um, just being able to refuel yourself, as Michael's talking about, is, is really important and being mindful about it. Um, so it's just been a blessing for me um, to work on some projects around the house and spend time with the family. And um, we are going to do a little camping in Oregon here in a couple of weeks. And um, oh, good. And sort of, that's sort of my fuel. But let me, I want to throw one more book at you that I kind of love. It's sure. a super easy read. We could talk about books all day long. I'll probably call Michael after this and we'll just share them back and forth. But but I, I love this book because it just, I read it several times uh, a, a year just because it just sort of reminds me of, of people and how we engage with each other. It's called Predictably Irrational. Oh. And it's by uh, Michael Ariely or Dan Ariely, excuse me, um, Dan Ariely. And it is it is a really fascinating sort of social study in, in the decisions that we make. Mm. Uh, and why we make them and the things that sort of influence us in the process. I, mean, I, I, I use it all the time when I talk about higher education, but it is so eye-opening and you reflect on yourself on why did I do that? And you go, oh, okay. Yeah. I guess, I guess that makes sense. It's totally irrational, but predictably so. Um, so it's a, it's a fun, quick read, but. Ah, I, we will look that up. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and um, I'm so impressed with the work that higher ed is doing and the, the changes that you're making to make all students feel included and part of the process. So thank you both for being part of the show today. We do want to mention that we have started going on to Clubhouse like next Wednesday and inviting our guests onto Clubhouse so that other people can talk to you as well. So we'll be 
extending that opportunity to you. If you'd like to join us on Clubhouse next Wednesday night, we'll be talking about higher education. And hopefully you can join us and let other people uh, ask you some questions as well. So what else do we need to add before we close, Jamie? Um, well, the Clubhouse is every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so join us to, like Jerry said, to continue the conversation, but interact. And we hope that both you, you know, Cameron and Michael can join us. We're not sure you will talk about if you have Clubhouse accounts or not, even though we've been talking about disconnecting from social media. But it is a <laughs> yeah. really interesting platform um, for this. It could be a mini habit a mini on Wednesdays. Habit. A mini habit. Right. <laughs> Um, but Jerry and I have organized, we really got to, we've been reflecting, as Michael said, we've been doing this now, this is our almost you know, 50 something podcast, right. and we were able to reflect and come up with themes that our podcasts exist around, and we've sorted those into choice boards, and so we are offering CEUs for um, any for any three podcasts that you listen to, and we have them organized by topics of SEL and collaboration and um, engagement, so um, we'll share those. And uh, if you check out our platforms, you'll be able to check those out and find them. So please enjoy them. Uh, but again, thank you. I'm, I just was loving this conversation so much. You brought the two of you just brought up so many different thoughts, um, you know, connecting either to my college days or my experiences with my daughters who are now at that age. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it just, it's so interesting to hear what, these new innovations that you all are realizing. And again, new, but really just bring it down to the basics. And really it's gonna make the difference to attracting and keeping students um, so that they can set off and be successful in their lives. So um, your colleges are very lucky to have the two of you. And we're really lucky to have the two of you on this podcast. So thanks again so much. Yes, yeah, thank well, you. Thank thank you guys for, for having me and, and Michael, I'll let you say your piece here. But I, I also I think it would be appropriate for us to to thank all of those educators out there at the P through 20 level who made so many sacrifices over the past 15, 18 months here yes. on service to our learners and our society. And so I would be remiss without thanking them and and thank you guys for sort of opening the door here on, on helping us innovate um, in the interest of equity. Great. Thank you. I uh, certainly I want to piggyback that. Uh, Cameron, uh, let's extend uh, my appreciation, gratitude to the teachers out there who were superheroes this year, to the mm -hmm. parents who became teachers by default, which was insane. Uh, but we're working through it. And, and certainly higher ed, who is just finding a new way to do business uh, and being creative in doing so. So uh, thank you. I look forward to listening so, to some more of your podcasts. You two are doing a great job. And I, I think the big, um, the big reveal is the impact that this has upon education as a whole, right? If somebody can change your way of thinking or doing something, then you know you've had an impact. So I, I love the, the work you're doing and I look forward to joining you in the future. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to stay linked up, be sure to follow us on Apple and Spotify and subscribe to us on YouTube.